Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Australia on this day. My name's Michael Adams, and today we're going back to Tuesday, the 27th of July, 1909. That was the day that the steamship Waratah was seen for the last time, going to its mysterious fate with more than 200 people aboard, many of them Australians. This is a story that also includes a one-armed double murderer, a scientific genius who'd reshaped the way we see the universe, and a button-down business chap whose bloody supernatural vision likely saved his life. The SS Waratah was built in 1907-1908 by the London-based Blue Anchor Line, whose business was plying the route between Australia and England. Almost identical to Blue Anchor's ship Geelong, the 10,000-tonne Waratah was 465 feet long and nearly 60 feet across at its widest point. Over its three decks, it had rooms and berths for some 431st and 3rd class passengers. First-class travellers enjoyed a 100-seat restaurant-style dining room, a nursery for childcare, drawing and smoking rooms, salons and a music lounge. Third-class passengers had their own dining room, smoking room, ladies' lounge and promenades. Down below, Waratah had large, dual-purpose holds. Back then, one of England's leading exports to Australia was emigrants, so these vast cargo holds could be used as dorms for up to 700 steerage passengers on the outward journey from England and then filled with Australian primary produce exports for the return trip. So Waratah was built for comfort, cargo and maximum profits. It was also built for speed and able to make 13.5 knots. The ship's captain was Joshua Ilbury, Commodore of the Blue Anchor Lines. He'd been a captain for 25 years and previously been in charge of the Geelong. Under Captain Ilbury, there would be, depending on the number of passengers, up to 150 crew members. Like another famous ocean liner that would make headlines a few years down the track, Waratah had a double bottom and eight watertight compartments. In an article about the ship that was published all over Australia in early 1909, the vessel was said to be, quote, practically immune from any danger of sinking. Unsinkable. But if the unthinkable should happen, there need not be any loss of life. Waratah had lifeboats capable of holding nearly 1,000 people, which would only be insufficient if it was packed to absolute capacity. What Waratah didn't have, though, was a Marconi wireless radio room because these were not yet compulsory. Waratah made its first voyage from London on the 5th of November 1908. There were about 750 passengers aboard and a full crew. Three weeks later, Waratah stopped in Cape Town before going on to Adelaide, arriving on the 15th of December. The ship's route took it to Melbourne, Sydney, back to Melbourne and then back to Adelaide. Along the way, it picked up and dropped off passengers and goods before beginning the return voyage to London. 
On this return voyage, one of those aboard was English-born academic Professor William Bragg, who'd made his home in Adelaide for nearly quarter of a century. Professor Bragg and everybody aboard the Waratah arrived safely in England in March 1909. This first voyage had been made without major incident, but Captain Ilbury was apparently concerned. It was later claimed he told his Blue Anchor bosses that Waratah had a list and wasn't as stable as the Geelong. Nevertheless, Waratah left London on its second voyage on the 27th of April 1909. The ship followed the same route via South Africa and docked in Adelaide on the 6th of June. Over the coming month, Waratah visited Melbourne, Sydney, then returned to Melbourne before going back to Adelaide. Now, Waratah was filled with cargo. Goods loaded in Sydney alone included 600 tonnes of oats, 100 tonnes of flour, 1,500 cases of meat, 3,000 crates of rabbits and 1,000 sheep carcasses. When Waratah sailed from Adelaide on the 7th of July 1909, bound for London via Durban and Cape Town, its food cargo was valued at some £200,000. On board were more than 200 people. There were 53 passengers who'd booked from Sydney alone. They included Mrs Allen of North Sydney, who was going to London with her two children, and Mrs Smart, who'd been residing at the Australia Hotel, also booked for England with her maid, Miss Henderson. Then there was the Bowden family of four, mother, father and two daughters, who'd booked in Sydney at the very last moment. Some passengers, of course, were foreigners returning home to South Africa and England. One such man was Claude Sawyer, a Swiss-born British company director in his mid-50s. He'd been in Sydney on business and also staying at the Australia Hotel. Now he was heading home to his wife in Hammersmith, London. While the crew and passengers of Waratah were ordinary decent folk, the boat also had one famous character aboard, though this man wasn't travelling by choice. He was Jack McLaughlin, a one-armed criminal whose people came from Manchester and Ireland. In January 1895, in Johannesburg, South Africa, Jack had shot dead one of his former gang members as revenge for this man turning police informer. One-armed Mac, as he was known, then killed a young Muslim man who was part of the crowd who tried to detain him. One-armed Mac succeeded in getting on a ship and getting out of South Africa. He continued his criminal career through the 1890s in India and New Zealand before arriving in Australia. In Brisbane, he was jailed for burglary. While he was behind bars, a Queensland detective recognised his photo, which had been sent by New Zealand police, who were also after him, and this Brisbane cop contacted South African authorities. The moment that one-armed Mac stepped from jail, he was re-arrested for the double murders and held until extradition was approved, and two South African detectives arrived to take him back to face justice. So it was that the passengers and crew of Waratah were to cross the Indian Ocean with a double murderer in manacles. It wasn't this that had Claude Sawyer frightened. Not long after Waratah left Melbourne, he felt the vessel was listing. Sitting in his bath, he saw how the water was sloping and felt that the ship might be tipping as much as 45 degrees off centre. Later, out in the Indian Ocean, he confided his concern to another passenger, and this man told him, in effect, if you think that's bad, come and see this. The seas were heavy, and they viewed how the boat would go up a wave, down the other side, and then, instead of riding the next one, would plough straight into it. 
Mr Sawyer worried that if waves were big enough, Waratah would be inundated. He did mental calculations and figured a succession of big waves could quickly put half a million tonnes of seawater in the boat's forward wells, and that would be enough to send Waratah to the bottom. So he resolved to get off the ship in Durban and find another boat to take him home. Yet, as Waratah steamed westwards, conditions calmed and the vessel seemed to settle, listing less. So much so that Mr Sawyer all but forgot about his resolution to find another passage from Durban. Then, one morning, about three or four days from reaching South Africa, he had three visions or a three-part dream. He wasn't sure. Whatever it was, it terrified him. Quote, I saw a man dressed in a very peculiar dress, which I had never seen before, with a long sword in his right hand, which he seemed to be holding between us. In his other hand, he had a rag covered with blood. I saw that three times in rapid succession during the same morning. Later that day, Mr Sawyer took aside the passenger he discussed Waratah's instability with and told him about the dream. The man said he thought that the bloody sword was a warning that Claude's life was in danger. That settled it for Mr Sawyer. When Waratah arrived safely at Durban on the 25th of July, he got a refund on his ticket and he tried to get other passengers to leave the vessel. But they didn't. Mr Sawyer wired his wife in London saying, quote, Booked Cape Town, thought Waratah top-heavy, so landed Durban. The next day, at around 8 o'clock at night, Waratah steamed out of Durban with 211 passengers and crew aboard. At around 6 the next morning, Waratah and another steamer called Clan McIntyre drew level. The crews of these boats used signal lamps to exchange messages about who they were, where they were bound, and weather conditions. Clan McIntyre signed off with, Thanks, goodbye, pleasant voyage. Waratah replied, Thanks, same to you, goodbye. Waratah steamed ahead of Clan McIntyre and slipped below the horizon and off the face of the earth around 9.30 that morning. Waratah's 900-mile voyage from Durban to Cape Town was expected to take three days. On the 28th of July, the day before the ship was due, Claude Sawyer said he had another dream. In this one, he saw Waratah battling heavy seas. Quote, One big roller came over her bow and she rolled over on her starboard side and disappeared. When Waratah didn't arrive at Cape Town on time on the 29th of July, no one was particularly worried. Delays were common back then, and if a ship didn't have a radio, there was no way of communicating too sure that they'd struck a bit of engine trouble or had been put behind by bad weather. As days ticked by, anxiety increased, particularly as ships following the same route arrived in Cape Town and none reported seeing Waratah. A rumour went around that one-armed Mac had taken Waratah to the bottom of the ocean rather than face justice. It was said the alleged killer had vowed to find a way to set the ship ablaze, and a crew of another boat supposedly sighting a smoking ship on the horizon lent this chilling credibility. Only, it wasn't true. One-armed Mac and his detective keepers had gotten off the boat at Durban. The search for Waratah began on the 1st of August with a single tugboat, but it had soon become a massive sweep of the seas, with the Blue Anchor Liner steamer Geelong and three British warships among the vessels searching. 
On the 10th of August 1909, a blue anchor vessel was spotted at some distance, seemingly making its way for Durban. This was believed to be the Waratah, probably returning to port after encountering mechanical problems. Relieved cable messages flashed around the world. Australia's federal parliament was even interrupted as the chairman of the House of Representatives read the happy news out to his colleagues. Of course, it wasn't the Waratah. Yet all hope still wasn't lost. It was very possible the ship was simply adrift. Waratah had all that food in the cargo holds, enough perhaps for years, and the ship's distillery could produce more than 5,000 gallons of fresh water every day. If the boat was still afloat, everybody aboard would be fine until they were found. Nevertheless, shipping agent offices in Sydney, Melbourne and Adelaide were receiving hundreds of panicked phone calls every day from friends and family of those aboard. That their loved ones were all right seemed possible after an old salt named Mr J Turnbull, now resident of Hobart, told a newspaper reporter in early August of his experience as second mate on the Waikato in 1899. The Waikato was a cargo vessel that suffered a broken shaft and after that floated helplessly on the Indian Ocean for 103 days before it was found and towed back to Australia. Mr Turnbull was quoted as saying, From our experience, I should think it would be almost impossible for a well-found ship like Waratah to go down, as our packet was only a cargo boat and she withstood over three months buffeting from some of the heaviest seas in any part of the world. While Mr Turnbull allowed it was possible Waratah had suffered a singular mishap, he felt confident the liner would drift south-easterly into the track of other vessels bound for Australia and, quote, there is every probability that she may be heard of before many weeks have passed. Despite weeks passing, on August the 28th, a correspondent for Bendigo Independent Newspaper also tried to reassure worried family and friends. Mr C.G. Richards wrote to the editor, quote, Will you permit me to impress upon them two words? Don't worry. Twenty years ago, the writer sailed with Captain Elbury, who never had serious mishap until the present breakdown in machinery. I have known him three days in oilskins during tempestuous weather. I have seen him sitting down, smoking and reading, while the ship was on fire, in order to allay passengers' anxiety. Apart from the latter sounding very much like a mishap, the writer claimed that Captain Ilbury lived a charmed life and, quote, were my own children aboard the Waratah, there would be no anxiety displayed by me. The Blue Anchor Company sent out a search ship in September and it covered 14,000 miles of the likely drift area, finding nothing. On the 6th of September, while this search was still underway, Sydney's Evening News ran an account of a former passenger who sailed on the Waratah and three times between Fremantle and Durban had jumped out of his berth because the boat was rolling so badly he thought it'd go over. Upon reaching Durban, he'd broken his journey and found another boat to England. It's not known whether this was Mr Sawyer, but the Evening News reported, quote, Taking the evidence received, especially that of Saturday, where the seas are described as coming up like a wall with the wind against the current, our informant expressed the view the Waratah had almost surely turned turtle and gone down. Accidents to machinery would only make the vessel more at the mercy of the waters. 
friends and family didn't give up and in February 1910 they spent £4,500 to send a boat out searching for four months from Durban. This vessel found no trace of Waratah. The search for answers had begun within days of Waratah's disappearance. It wasn't formalised though until an official inquiry in London in December 1910, which would conclude in February the following year. The evidence presented was highly contradictory. Unlike Titanic, just over a year later, there were no survivors. Every soul aboard Waratah had vanished with the ship. Testimony could only come from people who could say what they'd learned or witnessed on previous voyages. Mr. Claude Sawyer's evidence was electric because he didn't hold back with his story about his visions. His other testimony was no less chilling. Here's how Sydney's The Telegraph reported it, quote, Mr. Sawyer said the Waratah had a big list to port when leaving Melbourne and on going through disturbed water wobbled to a great deal and then took a list to starboard which she retained for a long time. Once, while Witness was on the boat deck, the vessel heeled over until the water was beneath him. While recovering herself, the vessel often gave a peculiar jerk. Several passengers were thrown to the deck and injured. The inquiry also heard from a steward who said he quit because he was scared by the rolling and hated the creaking. He claimed the whole promenade deck was shifting so badly that bolt heads broke off around the saloon and the saloon door was ajar in its frame by several inches. Another sailor said the boat was upright only in clear weather. An Adelaide sailor supplied an affidavit saying that he'd been warned off working on the Waratah by crew who said the vessel had nearly turned turtle in Sydney Harbour. Other passengers said the list had sometimes been so pronounced water wouldn't drain from their baths. These people also said Waratah would list to starboard or vice versa before writing itself and then listing the other way. One passenger testified she'd been told by a crew member that Waratah's list would require alterations that would take two months. Perhaps the most credible evidence, though, came from Professor William Bragg, who'd been on that first return voyage to England. Observing how Waratah behaved, he'd concluded the ship's metacenter was below the centre of gravity. This was in accordance with what other passengers had testified, meaning Waratah would list until an external force, waves or wind or both, righted the boat. Yet if this force was too great, Waratah would simply then list the other way. Professor Bragg told the inquiry that this list had been the subject of continual conversation and that he'd been so alarmed by it he'd raised it with the chief engineer, who just told him that everything was fine. But Professor Bragg testified a junior engineer had told him Waratah was the, quote, tenderest ship he'd ever known. How much faith could one put in Professor William Bragg's academic conclusions? Well, Professor Bragg was a world expert in mathematics and physics who, five years later, would share with his son Lawrence the Nobel Prize for their work on X-ray crystallography that revealed the subatomic structures of our universe. I'm guessing when it came to a boat's stability, he knew what he was talking about. And if Professor Bragg had gone down with the Waratah, our world literally might look very different to us today. 
As much as the inquiry heard damning evidence, they also heard from crew, officials, company men and maritime experts who said Waratah was perfectly seaworthy, having passed all inspections and sea trials and receiving the top plus 100 A1 rating from Lloyds of London. A letter written by a quartermaster to his parents on the first voyage said Waratah was a splendid boat. An engineer on that first voyage said Waratah was, quote, a steady, seaworthy, sharp steamer. However, Blue Anchor officials had to admit that Captain Ilbury had complained about the stability, but no action had been taken. As for what actually became of Waratah, the most valuable information came from the crew of the steamer Clan McIntyre. Less than 24 hours after seeing Waratah vanish over the horizon, the Clan McIntyre had hit incredibly bad weather, which descended into a hurricane. The ship's captain said that the huge wind-whipped waves were the worst he'd experienced in his 13 years at sea. Given much of the evidence was second-hand, the inquiry ruled that no one was at fault for Waratah's loss, and that the ship had been seaworthy and that she'd been lost in circumstances that were impossible to determine, though it was likely she'd encountered a storm and capsized. The court did raise questions and concerns as to why the owners hadn't acted on reports of instability and hinted they believed there might have been a cover-up. The Waratah disaster sank Blue Anchor Line. It was reputationally and financially ruined by the disaster and had to sell its remaining ships to a competitor. As for Claude Sawyer, his observations and premonitions saved his life and he'd live until 1925. And murderer, one-armed Mac, he'd face a remarkable trial that secured many witnesses to what he'd done 15 years earlier. One-armed Mac might have gotten lucky with Waratah, but he didn't with the judge and jury. He was found guilty and hanged in 1910. Did Waratah capsize and sink? Possibly, though it's also possible a scenario like one that Claude Sawyer imagined played out in which the boat took on water and sank like a stone. What's mysterious is that no bodies or debris were ever confirmed to have been found. That might point to whatever happened happening very fast, possibly at night, so the ship went down more or less intact and before anybody could escape. Despite intensive searches at the time of the ship's disappearance and as recently as the late 1990s, Waratah's wreckage has never been found. Just a side note, if you'd like to hear about my personal connection to the Titanic disaster, listen to episode 6 of Forgotten Australia. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Australia on This Day. Make sure you're subscribed to get every episode as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're after more tales from our fascinating history, check out my other show, Forgotten Australia. This podcast was produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. Thanks for listening and catch you tomorrow. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 